Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another AMP commentary. This month, we're doing Steven Spielberg's Jaws. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. (laughs) This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. are dealing with here is a perfect engine uh an eating machine we're not only going to have to close the beach we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark bad fish but i'll catch him and kill him did you hear your father out of the water now this shark swallow you whole you're going to need a bigger boat that's a 20 footer 25 three tons of them He's coming straight for us. Don't screw it up now. Don't wait for me. Now! Shoot! Watch the tail. Give him room. They can't. He's trying to run. Oh! Come quick. I can't hold it. None of man's fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Jaws. See it before you go swimming.
those were the dulcet tones of Percy Rodriguez on that trailer. He's in a Star Trek episode, right, John? Ooh. Isn't uh, he? Yeah. Um, He's like a Starfleet uh, guy. Yeah, and I can't just can't remember which episode it was right now, but we did talk about that, I think. I can't remember now, actually, <laughs> at all. <laughs> well, I'm Mitch Bryan. I'm John Engel. And I'm Todd Norris. I don't There's know. There's Todd Norris. Yeah. Todd Norris joins us again for another Spielberg commentary. Hitchcock and Spielberg, they seem to be. Is that is that all we've done? Has Todd done all the Hitchcock and Spielberg so far? I think Did, so. Wait, who was North by Northwest? I, I have exclusively Universal Pictures, I guess. <laughs> oh. Wait, who did? Didn't somebody do North by Northwest with us? Maybe Jason did. Maybe it was Jason. Can't remember anymore. We're also We're really joined by sticking. my two dogs in the background. If you hear anybody <laughs> snarling back there, that's that's um, that's will, Archie and Olive. They're playing the role of of the shark. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so if you're going to cue your movie up to go along with this, what I'd suggest that you do is let the Universal logo come up, and as soon as it fades to black, hit pause, and it will be from that point where we will start the movie. So hopefully you're all ready to go, and I will give us a one, two, three, and hit play. One, two, three, play. And that's a long fade to black. Crazy. So here we are. We're going to start the movie out with the shark, which is a good mm -hmm. place to start it. Shark POV. Shark POV and music that will only be used when the shark is there. <laughs> There's Mrs. Sid Scheinberg. Mm-hmm. Mm. Murray Hamilton. He got that extra large font on that yeah. card. Yeah, it's funny how the three leads are, you know, one's on the left and one's up higher, so that's how they would do it, like, with the sting. But then the right. third guy, he's the third. There's just no way around it. <laughs> right. We can argue about whether Shaw or, uh, you can say Shaw and, and Strider get equal billing, but, eh, I can drive us. He's the third. Bill Butler's credit gets right over the French kiss. <laughs> so the thing that is really noticeable about this movie are the, the number of long takes, the mise-en-scene of the direction. And, and the Spielberg oneers are all over this movie. Yeah. And yeah. here's one right here. This is all <laughs> just a, a, a simple tracking shot that's going to wind up here. And we've got our first little bit of trickery coming up in this next shot. Look at the, the smoke <laughs> that he's just inhaled out of his mouth blocks his view. <laughs> I guess I never thought about that as his smoke for some reason. I just thought that was general fire, you know, it, uh, it campfire smoke. Well, too, actually, I, yeah. Right. No, oh, wait, she's got a boiling pot. She's a got boiling, a boiling pot. Is she boiling her. some uh, crawfish or yeah. not crawfish, but uh, clams. South. clams or something? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now it makes sense. Never really thought about all that. To be able to point. see the ocean there means that they must have shot this sort of day for night, and they must have oh, yeah. actually been lighting the crap out of that, uh, the sand, the beach area there. Yeah, this is all day for night, and um, 
sometimes more effective than other times. Mm-hmm. You know what, though? I never think of this. I feel like we've had this conversation before, actually, maybe with Psycho. I don't think of this as day for night. I think of this as they've been partying all night and this is daybreak. I mean, we even get the sunrise later, don't we? When he's there's passed out on the beach. I mean, there's the sun right there. So. But the sun's gone there. <laughs> there's no sun. <laughs> right. Except for, except for so, what's creating the flickering uh, you know, waves out there. But and I can excuse it cloud, as cloud has moved in front very quickly in front of the sun. Yeah. I just think this is dawn. They've been partying all night. That's that's how I've always that's thought. That's probably true. I'd buy that. I mean, they're they're in pretty good shape. I mean, he's obviously drunk, but uh, yeah, at this time of the morning, I yeah. think he'd be pretty hard pressed to even run down the beach. And the sun's back. And so, if you if you watch the sun in this movie, you'll drive yourself crazy. And certainly, the mm-hmm. people making the film drove themselves crazy i mean we just went from a fully visible sun to a sun behind a cloud in one second (laughs) well now we apparently have the sun directly above her yeah and that light source there but we need that light source this movie's terrible (laughs) yeah what is going on here (laughs) who wanted to talk about you try to make a movie at sea and then try to do day for night yeah So I've heard stories about the harness that pulls this actress. Uh, yeah. That, she, you know, she felt the effects of that long after this movie was done filming. Yeah, it was pretty. It was a pretty violent effect. Especially, like, right here, you can really yeah. see it this is, whipping her around. It's funny, you know, we, we've seen this movie so many times that we can sort of talk calmly about it. But this was probably the most shocking movie opening in history. You know, this is what probably sold a lot of tickets was the water cooler talk about how this movie opens up oh i mean this movie the way it kills folks is for a pg rated uh <laughs> blockbuster the way it kills folks is very it, it's pretty brutal and who they decide to kill we'll get even to that the beginning later of too. the book is really brutal she gets bitten yeah. in half yeah and something about this guy lying on the beach just sort of in a drunken stupor makes it all the worse you know he Mm-hmm. He's not even aware that that horrible, horrible yeah, thing just nobody, happened. Nobody there. there to help her. Great dissolve. Fantastic transition cool. to our main character. You guys should talk about the economy of establishing character with this oh. opening dialogue. This is just a great well, way to set things I, I up. I so, yeah, and it's it has such space to it because they're they're just waking up and so you get so much information that's just cloaked in this kind of i can barely get these words out of my mouth because i'm just waking up in the morning Mm -hmm. so we got married couple new here they've already suggested that they're learning about the place they're at dogs and kids all Mm -hmm. mentioned and then we get the he's a fish out of water he doesn't even know how to talk here Mm -hmm. right Man, I mean, that's all in a minute. Yeah, <laughs> and it establishes the tone. It's funny, and the and the relationship between them—they're kind of the yeah. little jokes between each other. And then this is a real nifty bit of directing. I've always thought, yeah, because we get this—we're family forward here. Look at that in, framing. Far as the priority of the scene, but this should be a super important phone call, right? Like in the plot, but we don't really care. We care about the family behind mm-hmm. him. That's who's on the audio, right? It's pretty solid. This, bit of yeah, this was when overlapping unique. dialogue, you know, uh, courtesy of Robert Altman, etc., was very fashionable, and I just love the interplay of the foreground and the background. 
But we're not even getting any information on the phone, right? No. Like, but we know what it means. That's what's cool mm-hmm. is we're we're putting together two plus two, which is great. And then, of course, thematically, the kid in the background bleeding, you know, is foreshadowing the whole idea. And of the wanting movie to go it. swimming. Yeah. He's already bleeding. Now he wants to go swimming. <laughs> we're like, hey, that kid's a danger. It's very strange uh, to feel that way at this point. Well, this... And then they're playing on the rusty. He just said, don't play on that. And the wife goes and plays on it. White picket Almost fence. every scene in, in this is informed by what comes before it. And that's mm-hmm. great screenwriting. Mm-hmm. You, you take one scene out and it really hurts the, the next scene. And I know they found some of that as they were building the movie. I know they spent a lot of time writing these scenes on the land because they couldn't get the shark to work. And they had conferences with all of the keys, including Verna Fields, who was there, who would come up with shot ideas and things that they could get. Yeah. And so it's a film that's really well thought through because of the production difficulties. It's a little bit like John Carpenter's The Thing that way. Mm-hmm. This is one of so those oneers. This very, which you don't even think about it. It's not showy, but just the choreography of this tracking shot. And those great fences well, passing in, yeah. front, in the foreground is really sweet too. Yeah, it gives the, you a sense of movement. So yeah, that was a long. That was a long one. The prop work, the costuming, and the performance there too tell you a lot about Brody. I think because you're, I think he's been emasculated a little bit by having to hold the purse, right? And he's got those. Uh, clothes draped over his arm he stumbles a little bit coming down the hill he's putting on his glasses he's just absolutely not your typical tough guy chief like we're getting that out of the way right now mm-hmm. his everything about what we see from him here is not going to be the he's not burt reynolds you know he's not the tough guy and that's you know he's a fish out of water it's we've already established he's new yeah. here he's also i think he's seen things you know in his previous career but this is this is different and this that little look like an insert that felt like an insert shot to me. That this look mm-hmm. over his shoulder to the water, you know, this is projecting what the whole movie's going to be about, you know, his connection to out there. Here's another one of those great long takes. Um, fantastic use of widescreen and just... <laughs> and back in the 70s when everybody drank Alka-Seltzer, when <laughs> something was wrong, you know. Just sitting around having some Alka-Seltzers. This thing moves into the room, which is yeah. pretty impressive. yeah. Karateing the picket fences. You know, this movie's about a killer shark and it's known for being intense and scary, but just these moments in the beginning before it really gets heavy duty, I love all this stuff. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Well, this is my favorite movie, by the way, mm. if that matters. Really? Yeah. And then we dolly back out. You know, we had that little insert shot of the typewriter, but that was really all a single take. Great use of widescreen. Even like More the little flowers fences. in the foreground. We're just talking about picket fences. Now we're seeing picket mm-hmm. fences. Does he, that say, is that some sort of symbol of something? I don't know. He does this picket little skip fences. here. Yeah, that little. <laughs> yeah, and, and, he, and he crosses at the crosswalk coming up here soon. I think this is the shot where he does it, which is but really funny. We do these interesting, we're introducing the characters as he walks past sort of this wacky introduction of, of all of the players on the mm-hmm. island. 
Is this it? Yeah, he doesn't jaywalk. <laughs> he uses the crosswalk, which I think is hilarious. Well, while he but he walks down the middle of the street the whole time he's yeah, walking yeah, too, yeah. so it really doesn't make any sense. Now, of course, he does that is, old movie thing where they don't use sidewalks for in, some reason. In this, there was a Quint is in here, and there's a moment where he spotted Ooh. Quint or Quint spotted him, and they wisely cut that out mm-hmm. and held Quint's entrance until you know he has something to do, which is. A good piece of screenwriting advice. Mm-hmm. Don't introduce somebody until they do something. <laughs> Again, these banalities of you yeah. know, who has the better printing, all these things <laughs> really do make it great. And of course... The mayor's sport coat that is, is what makes this movie great. The costume designer of that deserves an Academy Award for sure. <laughs> sort of. If I could find one, I'd buy it. And that red, white, and blue tie, he's just like this clown of, uh, you know, patriotism. Because it's yeah. all Fourth of July. And, and yeah, it's. <laughs> so we got another one or here, don't we? This yeah. is, yeah. I mm-hmm. used to teach this in class uh about mise-en-scene and how framing the actors and moving the actors in the frame can create the the power dynamic and really if you just see where people are positioned in the frame etc and how this moves it explains the entire scene without even having to hear the dialogue what does it tell you about hendrix back there he just got direct orders from the chief to go paint those signs what's he doing with these guys it's kind of funny, right? Like it's like he uh, he's part of this small town power structure in some weird way. Like they tell him, "Come on with us. You tell us what's going on." Yeah. And he's like, "Sure." You just it's not listening to Brody, I guess. But look how know. Brody's just he's basically being uh intimidated off the side of the ferry and we will find out later he's afraid mm-hmm. of water. So I mean, he's really being bullied here way yeah. off to the corner of the shot. And that's by uh, Carl Gottlieb there in the um, Blue Suit, the screenwriter, one of the screenwriters mm-hmm. of the film. <laughs> you know, nobody blocks anymore in movies. And partially that's because they're shooting with multiple cameras and they want to have as much coverage the studio does so that they can cut the movie however they want to. I mean, th- there's no way you're going to cut this scene. This scene has to play out. Yeah. And it's all because of, of the blocking. And. I think it's too bad that films aren't blocked anymore. See, even as the scene gets more intense and they come closer to camera, the mayor is still dominating the frame in the center. You know, he's the one who controls this scene. And the whole point was for them to turn his opinion around, to get him not to shut down the beaches. And the ferry in the shot does a 180 in the background. And that last line is, you know, we can go back now. Just a great use of And then we cut right to the beach Obviously open. Yeah. But a great piece of mise-en-scene there, following the lady in, and then same camera line, bringing the kid out. Mm-hmm. And I think the same shot, he, this is one of those long takes. He, the kid, Kintner, is going to re- bring us to Brody. Mm-hmm. Just fantastic. And this is one of those sequences that we all remember. I remember it because of Olivia Newton-John on the soundtrack. <laughs> I even remember, like, the the color yellow is supposed to imply fear, I think. So the fact that the 
guy with the dog has a yellow shirt and mom has a yellow hat and the kid's on a yellow raft. There's a definite color code in this movie. And he wanted to avoid the color red, usually except for blood. And Alex's trunks. Yeah, right. <laughs> so these edits are great. Uh, yeah, I, I, this is this is beautiful, jump cutty kinds of edits. It's a little show offy, you know. Looking at it now, it's a little much. It's kind of film schoolish, but boy, it's cool. Oh, the whole but this whole sequence is showy. Yeah. And then you've got your first faux moment of menace. <laughs> But those long lenses he's using to photograph the people that are swimming is really great, too. Yeah. He just squishes everybody into the frame. And then here's what's called a uh, split diopter shot, where you uh, put something on the lens so that you can have the extreme foreground and the background in focus at the same time. And I, I love that stuff. This guy's hair is great. It's the dry look. <laughs> <laughs> Remember the hairspray? Yeah. That's right. He looks like a football coach. <laughs> so, of course, this was shot uh, in the early spring, and apparently it was very, very cold. Oh. All of the people on the beach scenes were very cold. And here comes the line of dialogue that would coin Brian Singer's production company, Bad Hat Harry Productions. Oh, really? This guy got a huge laugh. I remember that when I saw it. Mm -hmm. I, guess I, I guess I didn't know what Brian Singer's production company was called. Yep. Well, I guess so we don't have to worry about that where anymore. We've got Olivia Newton-John. Okay. Uh, maybe maybe she wasn't on earlier, but we're watching it with subtitles. But uh oh. He says Tippet on the subtitles. I thought the dog's name was Pippin. I think it's I'm Pippin. So, I think they're yeah, wrong. Yeah, I think that was a bad subtitle. That cut to the stick. And here comes the and John Williams score. And the these. Which means it's the real thing. Yeah. You probably don't think a kid's good. You know, you're like, ah, eh, it's a kid. It can't be that. They're not going to kill a kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. And then that. Not only do they kill the kid, but they spray blood. Yeah, that. Oh my god. <laughs> Geysering blood. It's so brutal. It's hard to believe. And there's our vertigo honestly. shot. Yeah. Yep. Which... Had anybody done one of those since Hitchcock? I wonder. Hmm. I, that's a good I've question. seen him a few times since Jaws. but Since Jaws, yeah, but I think that prior to Jaws, that wasn't something that I can't think of any time that I, I had seen one of the, those shots before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it again, all of this, this entire sequence just had such impact between the, the shot choices and the mise-en-scene, a few tricks like that, and the and the people wiping the shots for the for the edits. Yeah. The, it was really something. The rhythm, I mean, tour de force. You know, it's it's the definition yeah. of a tour de force. It's an incredible scene. She's got her yellow hat on, doesn't she? Mm -hmm. There's that yellow again. Oh, I just bought that raft. <laughs> <laughs> so, how far are we into the movie right now? Because. Are we even 20 minutes in? Or 18 minutes and 21 seconds. I always feel like that. it's um, incredible that we're this far into the story at this point. We know so much. 
um, about everyone and oh, not every character's been introduced, but it's just so efficient. Mm-hmm. We're really on the starting on the adventure already. Again, the overlapping dialogue and the long tracking shots. I even love how he hits his head on that sign. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, normally, you know, entrances and exits are considered, uh, you know, wasted time, but you need this entrance. It's such a, I don't know why. Like, to, if they had started the scene with everybody already here, it just wouldn't have worked as well. Because you get these it little moments. You to this, it orients you to the space. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I think some no, of these people a, were actually just locals, non-actors. They definitely were. Yeah, yeah she's a mm-hmm. local. Yeah. Now Vaughn is wearing his uh, real estate <laughs> salesman jacket. <laughs> Century 21. 20, Century 21 jacket. <laughs> I don't think that's funny. <laughs> that's great. We call her the two-tan lady. She is pretty tan. This movie looks very 70s. This is, look at these ties and, and just the glasses. Yeah. I but love you know, it. the image is so crisp. Mm-hmm. Like, that's one of the things that I really love about the cinematography, that unless he's slapping a long lens on it intentionally, the depth of focus is great. Yeah. He really fills in the frame. Poor Brody here. You know, again, he's always relegated to the corners of the frame because he just is not accepted by the people in this town. And so even in that shot right there, that sort of off-center framing, he, he has no power in these scenes. <laughs> and if you have any doubt, this makes it very clear. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> He's making it up as he goes along. And there's nothing Brody can do about it. Yeah, and he's framed all alone. You know, he's always in a single, separate from the rest of the people. Ah, here we go. Now, as for somebody with a little power, some of these some of these reactions by the locals are <laughs> a little dodgy. <laughs> Eating a single saltine. Th- this dolly shot, so our, our uh, dry look guy, uh, the gym coach here in the mm-hmm. foreground, it always looks like he kind of moves his head out of the way to to make room for the dolly or for the camera somewhere yeah, in here, yeah. I think. Like, <laughs> but this guy in the orange sweater is not going anywhere. <laughs> They're going to move around him. So it's such a better introduction for Quint. Yeah. Like, to think that you were going to meet him and his little friend in the hardware store, you know, is just so funny. That is a good lesson. This is an interesting creeping dolly as he speaks. I'm not sure where the objective is, whether it's to make it back to Brody or... I think so. It sort of connects the two characters, I think, you know. Yeah. I kind of get the feeling John McTiernan saw this scene and ran with it for Hunt for Red October. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) And Die Hard, too. Mm Mm-hmm. I just think the frame is just constantly dynamic. Yeah. And, and you Even know, in that shot, look at that. I yeah. Mean, you know, he... part of it is that they're shooting this on wider focal length lenses than a lot of modern movies are shot. You know, a lot of modern yeah. movies only reserve their wide shots for more establishing things. 
But Spielberg likes to shoot even that, that close-up. Those are all on fairly wide lenses, so there's this sense of depth and presence to the background. The opposite would be like Tony Scott, you know, that would shoot a close-up on like a 300 millimeter and the background is just complete fuzz. Now this scene is really interesting how it's kind of built and if you if you look at it and then what we're going to do some counterpunching with um the the time of day doesn't quite match up. Yeah. Just as a cinematographer I'm wondering they probably put some ND on the windows to darken the that's probably brighter outside than it looks and they've uh, gelled the be. windows. Yeah. And they're popping some big light through the window to hit them. But it does look the right. like there's a sun back up there, like in the upper right-hand corner of the frame. It's now been framed out by the by the window mm -hmm. sill. But there's a. It looks like the sun is back there going down. Yeah, they were having to play really fast and loose with creating some time of day in this movie. And uh, but again, letting scenes play this long, like there's no way that shot would have lasted that long in a modern film. So, so the sun's a little higher as he walks out, and and certainly the sun's a little higher on these guys. So it looks like we probably sh they shot this over a couple of days. Yeah, because we're back. See how that doesn't <laughs> quite match. <laughs> These days, you know, you could do all fix all this in the color grade, but uh, you didn't have that ability in 1975. This is always a great la gets a great laugh too. Huge laugh, yeah. <laughs> it's a regular Gilligan's Island change of opinion. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> So here we're back uh, day for night again. Yeah. I and love I, this. I love that dissolve. That is a great dissolve. I love dissolves within the temporal state. You just don't usually see that done. De Palma will do it occasionally too. But usually they save dissolves for transitions from yeah. one scene to the next. Now I heard this scene went through different, like they shot a version where Charlie gets eaten and one without, and I think, uh, I don't know if they were hedging their bets or not, but I think um, Spielberg always seemed to err on, you know, letting people off the hook until the, the mm -hmm. plot really necessitated. So is what do you think, dusk for night? Because that, that light bulb behind his head is, is popping a little bit. So here we are back at the book, looking at the book again, and look what... <laughs> Look what time of day we have here. Yeah. So this was clearly snatched from the earlier scene to give us something to cut away from the guys to. But the so reflection really of the book in his glasses is what it is awesome. Is That's so what you notice. Amazing. You don't really notice that it's that it's actually way lighter. Mm -hmm. oh, he just got an idea there. <laughs> the one shot of the air tank and the That's true. The, the sharks foreshadowing. Know. There's twice that I think that they foreshadow that. But I think talk about Quint, great. Quint does it later. Great parallel cutting. You know, we're seeing this. We're seeing these gruesome effects of shark attacks, and we're cross-cutting mm -hmm. this with the guys out that shot. You know, we're like, oh, well, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that guy's leg almost had like a donut hole, you know, like in a hole in his leg, and then you cut right to that. Here comes my bit of a this match little cut. Uh, reaction shot. <laughs> <laughs> that. <laughs> 
these guys are dubbed, by the way. All the, the these voices are not the because they use some locals to shoot this scene, but then they dub their voices. Yeah, and so this idea of the doc turning around and coming back at them was something that was they came up with uh, in the process. Is it because the shark didn't work, and this was one of yeah, those cases I where think they? It's one of those cases. Yeah, yeah, and it's brilliant. It is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And then and you wonder like how long it took them to to come up with this first idea of substitution like the dock and then be able to go oh we can do that with the barrels we can do that with you know there's mm -hmm. substitution all through this movie mm -hmm. of other objects that represent the shark and you know having the camera we already saw it but placing the camera in the water so that actually the water line is like that right there that was a fairly new approach to shooting these types of movies and obviously has a visceral impact when we feel like we're there drowning too. Yeah, didn't didn't he ask Bill Butler to design some kind of a, a camera housing that would that they could do that? Yeah, with? they must have like kind of like a big fish tank, you know, where they could put the camera down there without it getting wet. <laughs> this is like really bad, but it's a thing that you can't cut because it was this guy was so important, <laughs> such an icon that they had to yeah. leave it in, I guess. <laughs> but so here we are, you know, 28 minutes in, and I would, I guess we would say that we're at either the end of the first act or the beginning of the second act, because we're going to bring in one last character uh, in the setup. And, and then we're, I think we're, we've clearly moved into the mm -hmm. second act of the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I would argue maybe that the you know we'll see when we get there that the first act ends after the autopsy, but yeah, this might be one of those cases where trying to peg the movie into a three act structure is just you know this it's so difficult to do and it's it's kind mm -hmm. of an example of movies can work regardless of whether they adhere to some sort of strict three-act approach or not. I, I, but the, what you can do is you can look at this movie in terms of sequences. Exactly. Which is really more important than first act, second act, third act. And so, the big, so this is a new sequence that begins with the arrival of Hooper and ends with the autopsy. Mm -hmm. And so it's... And that does definitely take us into the second act of the movie. Like, the setup is over. Once this guy shows up... And confirms, you know, mm -hmm. he confirms it's a shark attack, but we know it's a shark attack. So it's really just his, him showing up is what sort of completes yeah. the setup of the movie. And what he's doing is he's changing the dynamic. Uh, he's the one who's telling, who's convincing Brody, like, look, you know, we all want to do the right thing here. And um, he's definitely a catalyst to get for Brody's conscience to get on, <laughs> get off his butt and do the right thing. Yeah, he's the first ally that appears. Yeah. Oh, here's another one of these just sort of unassuming long takes, you know, that just yeah. no cuts. It doesn't draw attention to itself, but we just kind of let the scene keep going. It's so great. See, so glad that somebody from that's not from here. Yeah. Who knows something is here. I mean, it's just so exciting to him. Yeah. Uh, 
he already knows he can't really talk to these people. So, And, you know, what I wanted to bring up really quickly is that, you know, they, they always say that movies are about conflict um, and that you can't have a good film without conflict. But also, you know, movies are about connection. And I think one of the really just necessary ingredients of this movie is this friendship that develops between these two guys. This, this discovery that these two people really get along is half the fun of this movie. But they're completely well, I think, surrounded with conflict. Yeah, That's exactly. The exactly. I mean, there's conflict everywhere. It just happens that it's not between those two guys. Right. And then there's a little, there's just like an undercurrent of conflict when they're all on the boat later, when Quint sort of mentoring uh, Brody mm-hmm. here and there. And and you could see it's sort of like a a triangle yeah. uh, that creates conflict between Brody. And, it doesn't really create a, a rift or anything. It just... Kind of pushes against Brody and Hooper's relationship a little bit. This is a great yeah. sense of dark black humor, you know, like when he goes to see the remains and they just bring out this little box. It's just so. Yeah. <laughs> There's a. There, this, you know, Spielberg ended up making quite a career being pretty twisted at times. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that in this. And I think there is with John Williams, too. We can, uh, we can talk about that a little bit, how often Williams' score kind of contradicts in this twisted, ironic way what we're seeing. Yeah. Or what we know is coming, or you know the stakes that are have been raised at that point. Now you definitely can see when we uh, look at the remains that the, these are insert shots that were done. At yeah, a different time. There's always a there was that really weird that line where he goes, "Now this is what happened." Exactly. That sounds very dubbed, and I remember the pan and scan version of the the lifted the insert of the arm being lifted up was always weird because I think the camera was having to yeah that. On VHS looked so strange. Mm-hmm. I can happily say that I have no memory of seeing this movie on VHS. I know I did, oh my but God. way I've seen it way more times than its proper aspect ratio. You're lucky. I got to. I watched it for years on Betamax tape. Yeah, and yeah, yeah that's a whole other conversation. It wasn't a, This was not a family film for for me. Like we did not watch this at my oh my gosh parents' so house, funny. so it wasn't one of those movies. I never owned it like I did Back to the Future and Star Wars and things. I made so, my family watch this movie over and over <laughs> and over again. I think my parents were kind of against it, but it never really came up either. So good. I mean, just that cut to him splashing his face with water, saying that line, cutting to this open mouth. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just hitting on all cylinders all the time. So good. And so this apparently really stunk, this <laughs> dead know. shark that they had around for days. Mm-hmm. Dave Axelrod. What is it with that name? Sorry. <laughs> David Axelrod is a common name I've noticed mm-hmm. over the years. Well, everything's okay now. So why does he assume Ben Gardner? Is that just a setup so we know who Ben Gardner is later? I think so. I think he's kind of like Gardner, the best right? fisherman in town, you know. Must be the best fisherman. Therefore, when we find his eyeball popped out of the water it must mean things are pretty bad this is absolutely great this shot of quint going by (laughs) kind of laughing at him you know yep it's it's like i guess you could say oh i guess we're not going to need that guy but we know better (laughs) (laughs) we know how moving just like in high school one row standing (laughs) i'm god i feel bad i'm blanking on who's the who's the stagecoach driver and stagecoach the guy who plays him Uh, is it andy devine Andy Devine, thank you. 
There's a clear Andy Devine stand in here. Oh, that guy. Yeah. That guy. Yeah. I, I swear to God, they had to know. I'm sure Spielberg was laughing guy? about it. <laughs> You'll see. It's more that so right in there. another shot coming. Yeah, yeah right here. Yeah. Totally. Uh, what? You know Spielberg was like, I got an Andy Devine guy here. Even, talk, even says something here <laughs> in a minute. What? That look right there. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> Oh, look at look at Mayor Vaughn's jacket. Oh, God, yeah. Another beauty. Another beauty. Wait, is he back with the anchors again? Because no, he wears the anchor a, jacket no. twice. Candy stripe. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. It, it probably looks like the uh, hospital curtains later, you know, when he signs <laughs> yeah. the thing. It's just. Yeah. Look at but, that. Oh, my God. Because doesn't he does wear the anchor. We'll keep an eye. I think he wears the anchors again, which is weird. For costume design, you would usually they don't put characters back in the this same thing. clothes again. Yeah. But. <laughs> I love that fact that Hooper calls them bozos. <laughs> <laughs> his utter contempt for the townies is lovely. He's already calling him by his first name. You know, he calls him Martin. You know, it's just there's this friendship immediately. Uh, there's, there's, there's the a couple of them city are slickers. dominating the frame, and you've got the mayor kind of squished back in the back. Which yeah, is nice. But he, look at the the, the the double takes he's doing right now. Uh oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Murray Hamilton's so great. You remember him in seconds? Oh yeah. Yeah. This is a long take as well. Mm-hmm. And it mirrors the the scene later where they're going to try to convince him to shut down the beaches. It's the, At the same. Billboard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very similar. <laughs> so th- this is such like a hyperbole, you know. Like they're not going to do that right there. Right. <laughs> this is making this is very political of, hyperbole. Um, is, that's a great reminder. The little yeah. Kentner boy. Spill in on the docks, and then you right. cut to this mm. lady. And in case you don't know who she is, well, they just mentioned the little boy. Mm-hmm. That's so great. You're right. That's great. See, these scenes are done with wide-angle lenses. That's tight right there. But so that you're looking over the shoulder of Brody, but you can tell the camera is right there. Mm-hmm. And that's a very Spielbergian thing to to shoot your overs and all your shots right there, rather than on a longer lens farther back. And, and you can just feel that when he's making this decision to shoot this movie in scope, he's thinking, okay, I got to fill the frame. Mm-hmm. I have a frame that's going to require three people most of the time. Yeah. If this were 185, you could drop the frame, you know, just outside of her head. Yeah, you wouldn't need to see that guy in the background. You wouldn't need to see the guy. That, yeah. But he closes it off. I mean, you could just as easily not have that guy there, and then you've got a vanishing point, but that does not create the claustrophobia. That guy is there mm-hmm. to further him, everybody in. Right, and it redirects your eye back to, you know, the center of the frame. You know, her acting's not the best, but boy, this is a really great scene. This is... It's remarkable how long Spielberg forces him to endure this. Yeah. Like, it's... You would not think the scene would go on this long, but he's really kind of torturing him a little oh, bit yeah. there. yeah. And then we get this this moment right here, which I've always thought was remarkable, where he's he's sort of admitting something here. Vaughn is he's actually human there for a second. He's not as cartoony as we remember him. I don't think. Mm-hmm. I think there's a little bit of real 
human behind but he always Vaughn. does the wrong thing because he tries to reassure right brody mm-hmm. that the lady was wrong and of course she wasn't wrong and that cut and, brody, to, and yeah. brody knows it yeah i think in a way though he knows okay maybe i'm giving him too much credit but i think he knows that he was at fault too <laughs> and i think he knows that definitely knows that later he just doesn't know how to uh that's he's a politician it's not in his character to function off of those realizations so this scene which everybody loves and remembers it was famously another one that was kind of improvised on the day Scheider and the kid got this thing going and then asked Spielberg to come take a look at it and Spielberg brought the camera in and shot it yeah and I think he knew that it, it needed a moment here this humanizing moment There's a little yeah, bit of echoes of Close Encounters here, you know, in terms of oh, these sure. shots like this, yeah. the mashed well, potatoes no. scene. Yeah. So yeah. this this is an accident, you know. This like, and then he knew what he tool he had this tool, so he took it to his next, you know. I think this is Spielberg learned. Hey, I can do these scenes. These scenes are good. They work really well. People like them. So he wrote scenes mm-hmm. for Close Encounters like this. I totally believe that these, this is a father and a son. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. Get out of here. Like <laughs> get out of here is great. <laughs> so we're still in the, I mean, this is, we're still in this angle. This is this, we've, we've been in this yeah. position for a long time. And just letting the introduction of a character play out of focus in the background. I mean, it's it's perfect. So I think Lorraine Gary has said in interviews that they decided she and Dreyfus were going to play the scene like the book that they were, if not already having an affair, headed toward an affair. Now, that doesn't exist in the movie, thankfully. It's, yeah. It's, but they're playing something between the two of them that is also kind of perverse. See, I, I just like to think of it as she's happy to have somebody not from the island around, too. That's I mean, this... because you're a good person, John. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. They're just joking. <laughs> it's like, how could they possibly have already developed a sexual chemistry? Well, that's the thing. That's what's so great is that you talk to enough actors and they will tell you that sometimes you're playing a scene with somebody and, and the two actors, even though they're connecting, are playing two entirely different stories for themselves. Mm-hmm. So if these two decided they're going to create an intimacy between the two of them, we're going to play it like we're hot for each other or interested in each other. Right. It helps the scene. Sure. Mm-hmm. But then there's the context of what the mm-hmm. scene is actually then the about, context about that then you have to fall on. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Which is that's not there. And, and so to me, within context, we've already seen Brody so happy to have somebody from off the island, somebody up here. Oh, look at her, though. She is so into him. Because he's a funny guy from the city. <laughs> I know, I know, but I'm saying that they're, you know, what the actors are using is really interesting. I get, oh, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm yeah, and start. I think the end result, if you want to just talk about what ends up happening regardless of the subtext, is that Brody looks still alone, you know, like he's off trying to open that wine bottle, you know, and so the button of the scene is going to be where he connects to Hooper saying, hey, let's go find, dig, a, you know, open up that shark. So it it creates this nice sort of, I won't call it a reversal, but just something interesting to where he connects to Hooper, even though there's this other thing going on. But, 
But I think they kind of seem like outside. They're doing their own thing because he's clearly inebriated and kind of off in his little world in the middle. Yeah, the little two fingers thing. Tumbler of wine. <laughs> By the way, Brody is good at pouring wine. He is. He does. He pours it neatly and he twists it at the end to cut off the stream, just like you taught two, to in but restaurants. Not for his tumbler. <laughs> <laughs> no, not for his tumbler, but for the correct the correct uh, glass. He does. Yes. He, it's a little bit of a short pour, but he does cut it off in a nice uh, professional way. I do have to say the coming up the, the last shot where um where he says I can do anything I'm chief of police and I think uh Hooper takes a drink and there's a shadow of his glass on the wall and the only reason I remember that is on the pan and scan VHS you couldn't see Hooper or his drink so when he you says I'm chief of police all you see is this shadow on the background kind of yeah, like a tipping glass too. I always think of the thing when I see that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> His little bit hand business peeling the bottle. So do we have a diopter on this, too, or not? I don't think so. I, I think it's just a fairly deep stop. They're probably shooting this at 5.6 or something, and it's a wide enough lens that... I mean, you can tell the, the actors are a little soft, you know, in the foreground. He, he's definitely a little soft in this one. The one or the other is like, it just looks like his beard is soft, and that's why I wondered yeah. whether it was a diopter. I don't, yeah, I don't up. think they're doing the diopter on these. It's just wide angles. So that shot of the light coming into camera, you wonder whether that is that Verna Field saying, mm. get me get me one of those shots. Uh, there's a lot of shots on the boat when they're going after the shark. Uh, that When we get to that, that I know specifically were shots that she gave him to go out. Yeah. So Verna Fields is the editor of the movie, and she also edited Sugarland Express, I believe, uh, which was Spielberg's first uh, theatrical feature. feature. And, uh, and then she, she died not long after this movie, but she was definitely uh, an inspiration and a, and a creative force on this film and a, you know, a mentor, I think, to Spielberg. Oh, so that's why he hired Michael Kahn on, uh, wasn't it Michael Kahn? On Close Encounters. On Close Encounters? Probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. 007. Because yeah. I think this was the last movie yeah. that Verna Fields edited, I think. Oh, was it a 007 license plate? Yeah, yeah. Spielberg used to say, I'm putting on my thinking music, and he would listen to James Bond scores and John Barry. Nice. Again, this is a one or basically. I mean, the master from here. Yeah. Anyway. Just a point, uh, Werner Fields didn't die until 82, oh. actually. So I don't know why he didn't use her again. Did she keep editing after after Jaws? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Do a little well, I think they had here. somewhat of a no, falling not, out well, now that I think about it. Oh, did they really? Yeah, I you know, I um No, uh, Jaws was her last movie though. Hmm. As editor. But I think there might have been a, a little bit of when when the movie became a big hit and Spielberg started to, you know, put on that thing of I did everything myself. I think mm -hmm. Verna felt a little shut out for her contributions. Well, well I remember did. in the early eighties when I was just, had just moved to California and was starting film school. Um, so people were still talking about, about jaws. And, um, I remember there was some, 
some of that stuff that was going around, like mm-hmm. how much she did on the film and didn't really get credited for or acknowledged. Well, uh, I can point to two movies that she made right before this that were editing like miracles in a way, Medium Cool and American Graffiti. She mm-hmm. edited both those. Now think about how much mm-hmm. she must have contributed to make those films yeah. what they were. Because yeah. both of those are feats of editing to have, to have accomplished. And in both cases, first time kind of, I mean, early directors. I mean, I guess Lucas Very had done THX, so. but yeah. So here we're out on the uh, lake mm-hmm. at the Universal Backlot. We are not out on the ocean. And you can tell. Yeah, we've got fans uh, blowing yeah. smoke to help give us a sense of motion and a kind of rocking of the boat that seems a little... But this is a great scene. And, um, you know, it, it was originally written to happen during the day. And I think they might have even shot a day version, or at least maybe not this part, but the discovery of Ben Gardner, et cetera, was a mm. day scene. And he smartly changed it to a night scene. Can you like imagine? Part of that wasn't part of that. Did they reshoot this as well, or to match up with the because re- the what we end up seeing in the water he shot later yeah. in Verna Fields' swimming pool. Oh, that lighting all right of, there. Know, that's a great shot. <laughs> all of this stuff. I, I mean, they did shoot it back at Universal on the on the mm-hmm. lake, which I just think. Can you imagine after all that time that they spent in Martha's Vineyard, they come back to Universal, all that day behind schedule and over budget. And they're shooting more stuff <laughs> still. <laughs> yeah. I got to say that, you know, going back a minute or so, the biggest laugh in the movie for me is is Brody's uh, drunken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's only an island if you're looking yeah, at yeah. it from the water. <laughs> and and drives his reaction. That always gets, I laugh out loud every time. We're, we're watching this silent right now, but the the um, the John Williams cue here, I think, is incredible. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He scores the now, this, first half like a horror movie and the second half like a pirate movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big adventure film yeah. in the second. Uh, but this would end up being... What's Von Korngold, very, mm-hmm. you know, Warner Brothers, swashbuckler. This would end up being kind of a signature Spielberg look, even though he would have different directors of photography. But that, uh, you know, volume, this kind of stuff, the shafts of yep. backlight, mm-hmm. definitely in Close Encounters. But it just became kind of the signature look. Now, this Uh-oh. this is the gimme for the movie to me. The the one gimme where I think the logic is a little iffy and we're just trying to get a moment. I feel like the screenplay is pretty airtight throughout, but this, let's just tow it in. Oh, we're going to tow it in. I just got to look at something. There's just no yeah. reason. That doesn't make any sense. And I think this was added. Unless this, we're this, trying to get that. Th- uh-huh. This whole moment was added for another scare. Yeah, I mean, I think it was it as simple was, as yeah. he wanted another scary beat in this part of the movie. That's exactly right. And it became the probably the most that the upcoming jump scare is probably the most famous one. So that's why I was asking, did they reshoot at Universal for night? You said they might have shot it during the day. Or they did a version during the day because swimming, shooting inside of a somebody's swimming pool, you got to do that at night, right? Like you can't. You're not going to do that and fool anybody at the in the daytime. So here we're so. on the tank at MGM. On, on the old Esther Williams tank. Mm-hmm. So it's only that it's the close close-ups. shot that he went and got at a swimming pool. Yeah, Those and I think it was like he realized after a preview that he could get a bigger he could get a bigger jolt. Yeah, and I think it was like Verna Fields' swimming pool, unless that's just an it apocryphal was. story, but I think it is. It was Verna Fields' swimming pool with a gallon of milk poured in. 
to to fog up the water just enough to make it look like it could be the ocean. That's as simple as that. So. St- <laughs> the audience went out of their minds in oh, fact, sure. the biggest it was it was such a big scare that uh, he was worried he might not ever be able to top it in the rest of the movie <laughs> so let's analyze he, why he that works is it because our focus is on the tooth and and uh dreyfus gives that little look around him like is there a shark around so we're not expecting so. the, the thing to be inside but outside i think so well, it's a total i think it also works because that f- the very split second of when you first see him, he could be a shark. I mean, I think there's yeah. the idea that that could be a shark coming out after him for just that moment. And then you get the gory, the gross out mm-hmm. moment to follow. So it's a it's a double whammy of horror in a way. So here's another uh, big one This is all one mm-hmm. take. Yeah. This is. And yes, Johnny's got his jacket back on for you. He does. There it is. And all of this really is is the mayor bringing Brody out here to look at this billboard you know like that's what yeah. it's supposed to be he's mad about the billboard that's why they parked here and walked all the way from their cars but he's getting kind of ambushed here by yeah. uh, by hooper and Brody. but just you know blocking and staging the, these movements for the frame it's it's uh again not showy but it's perfect and he's and doing all kinds of political lawyer stuff he's where's this tooth did you see this tooth <laughs> what's the name of that shark again tell me you know he's doing all this to obfuscate He's just being a politician. And then with a simple pan, we're going to reveal mm-hmm. something else and create the, a new visual dynamic. So, actually, it's not a pan. It's a dolly. Isn't yeah, it? we're doing it. It's a little, yeah. little dolly tracks here. Yeah. They might have even zoomed out a little. Now that I see it, there was a slight zoom out, I think. Or the, or the track was laid. At an angle, maybe. I mean, they might be. You get what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I love how Dreyfus ends up framed in this shot. It doesn't seem like it was intentional, maybe. Yeah, like but way it, down I love at the how bottom. low he is on the frame here in a minute. <laughs> and then there's our uh, deputies, you know, in the background doing the. There's a whole Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead type movie about the deputy having to do all the <laughs> schlep work behind the scenes. I mean, look at this shot. We are almost up their noses. Mm-hmm. We are really low. When yeah. when Dreyfus walks away again, it's so unique to me where he is in this frame. He's cut off at the neck. Yeah. It's weird. It's kind of a mistake, but, I love but it. it's great. Well, he gets a big moment, too, with it. Yeah. Yeah, it really works. Like, this is a strange And I imagine the operator is probably going like, do you really want me to do this? I can, do, do I t- do I tilt down? What do I, I mean, do? Well, was it Dreyfus, though? I mean, did Dreyfus go off, yeah, uh, I don't off know. book there with the blocking? I always thought this was great, too, when he's saying, you know, those beaches will be open. And when he gets down to his car, there's a one-way sign behind him. You know, talk about, like, basic right. symbolism about it's my way or the highway. He's, that's right. Always pay attention if there's a sign in the shot because somebody mm-hmm. put it there mm-hmm. or somebody decided to leave it there. Yeah. Is there. We got a nice long one on this one. Yeah. It? This is our, 
This is like the closest thing to a montage, I guess, that Spielberg maybe has ever really done. And this is the most twisted bit of William's score, I think. It's so... Even the, yeah, even the uh, parenthetical we just got on the Kelly's caption said, cheerful music. And it sounds like the intro to New Heart or something, <laughs> right? Yeah. But it's total lambs to the slaughter is the whole idea. We've got the, the people that know what they're talking about. They know what's really going on are desperate action cu- countered with these people that are just walking onto the menu. Yeah, that's true. It's very snotty. It is. <laughs> it's all given structure by Williams' score. Oh, it's as great as the editing is and the con- <laughs> contrapuntal dialogue and all that is the, the score is what makes it. He's the little guy with the crew cut. <laughs> <laughs> I think that guy we just saw might be the only black guy in the whole movie. I, think I know right. there's some. There's, some. there's old cars, bikes. People bringing the jag over to Amity <laughs> on the trolley <laughs> or on the ferry. Sorry. I kind of remember this game. I I always thought this was very advanced for 1975. Like, I I remember Pong in the late 70s. I don't know why I didn't think they had video style games, but here's another great stage tracking shot. You know where Brody moves into the background, unless I'm misremembering. But there's, I think he actually moves closer as the camera tracks. He comes back towards camera. So they've set up a perimeter of communication. You know, we're ready for anything here. So here's uh, they're not. Peter Benchley, the author of the book. <laughs> That's nice. This is another one of those cold days. You can kind of tell. Yeah. Looks like people are struggling to pretend to be warm. You want to find the one extra that was like, screw this. I'm not (laughs) pretending like this is a warm day. (laughs) Oh, hi, Larry. Why are you wearing that mask? Don't wear the mask at Target. Very... (laughs) Well, he's got the hair fluffed out. Nice look there. (laughs) These guys. They must have cast her for having the perfect look of, you know, dread. (laughs) Like, (laughs) helpless dread. Look at this. Look at this. Lunchtime. They're the only ones going in. That's a pretty great shot. Yeah. He's got him an M1 there. <laughs> Look at her face. Yeah. And this, you know, all the uh, the binoculars and the walkie-talkie chatter, again, it's that, like in Close Encounters, that sort of uh, fetishization of radio chatter that I dig, too. So this was... So, oh, yeah. Guys, yeah. here is where uh, I remember them having an intermission and coming back from intermission on that um, helicopter shot when I saw this in Kansas, in Hutchinson, Kansas. And it was such a strange feeling when it abruptly ended for an intermission, and then it comes back. It's there's no. It's not like there was a midpoint curtain like Lawrence of Arabia or something. 
I think they wanted to sell popcorn. Yeah. I don't think anybody was getting up and going to buy any because the movie was so riveting. Yeah, why would you want to get up now? <laughs> That's also like the shot. This is a real John Ford kind of shot. Well, it is, yeah. That intermission that you talked about is also where you had to flip the laser disc if you had a laser disc player that was two sides. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there was a real change there. Mm -hmm. That was what makes it made it make sense. Good for a real change, bad for an intermission. <laughs> so we just got we just got that shot of the smallest kid running after. And at this point in the movie, pretty much if you're showing a kid or a dog or anything, you're absolutely terrified. Yeah, I mean, he's but, he's established but what that he will kill have? dogs and children. What don't we have? <laughs> we don't have the music. Mm -hmm. The shark theme is not going. So but I think we're that, ready. As soon as it comes up, though, we know trouble, you know. Right. But oh. I think it's. That's a great I shot. I just too. think it's it's great that he's playing fair with the audience. Mm -hmm. he, he he can afford to. He's he's got a lot of capital at this point. He's established that he'll do anything to to mess with us, and all these legs are are, are up for, for dinner. You yeah. know, and it, we're terrified. One, one story I heard about Verna Fields in her approach to editing the beach scenes was that she intentionally would change her internal rhythm. You know, editors have a rhythm of when to cut and she would modify her instinct by a few frames to kind of keep the audience off kilter so that you would never feel this sort of presence of a, of, of a definite rhythm. And uh, I think it works. Yeah, it reminds me of that story that Michael Crichton wanted to do a cut every second for 72 seconds of the Great Train Robbery to make what he thought would be really suspenseful for this real-time segment, and the rhythm uh, was so specific that it actually made it dull. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, these people popping up into frames, that's thats one of his tricks mm -hmm. all through this movie, which is great. No whistles! <laughs> I remember early on when I was um, oh, working on an early earlier film, I had the film editor was saying, "Be sure you always bring everybody in and out of frame. Go ahead and let them leave frame." You know, I was cutting, mm -hmm. I was cutting cut, calling cut too quickly. Yeah, mm -hmm. and editors know that often it's that stuff that happens before cut, letting those scenes run a little longer. It can even be after you've said cut. Yep, I heard that the the ad who would be barking to the extras here to get off the beach that they had to redo it sometimes because he was like, it's right behind you. It's a giant shark. It's got fangs. And apparently like the, the extras running off were like laughing their ass off because the ADs things were so specific. So they had to like tell like, okay, come on, you know, we can't have the extras laughing. <laughs> and it's so Spielberg, you know, of course it's a couple of little kids. I was always confused as to whether this was Brody's kids or not. Like, that was just my own... I mm -hmm. always made a mistake of, like, is that is the Chief's kids being jerks? And then we find out no, because we're going to see the Chief's right. kids in, in a minute. I mean, look at that shot. They took the time to get that shot of hauling him out of the water. Mm -hmm. That could not have been easy. To line those boats up. 
Now what? Yeah, the tension is really just deflated. Yeah. Which is so amazing. And that's why John Williams's music, it feels like it's taken a while to get started, you know, that kind of yeah. like building, and then, building. And he accelerates. And that long pace. lens right there making the. Yeah. yeah, that's great. To me, the anxiety that's built by the deflation and then a woman seeing sharks and yelling shark and you, we know it is. Yeah. Like, well, it's not going to be right? a second fake shark, yet yeah. nobody else does. And you're like, ah, go. <laughs> it creates this anxiety. And then we end up here. Where it's just, this guy's just flat out you screwed. Guys okay over there. <laughs> Does he say that because the kids are gawking in wide-eyed horror? Yeah, <laughs> like I've always kind of thought there could have been a, another I, shot there. there we but go. Need so that's to be. our first shot of the mechanical shark, oh. right? Um, where you see its face and its teeth, and that's such a great shot. Really convincing. Yeah. Yeah. That's pr- that's pretty good too. Ugh. Oh, ow. And then there's the way that leg bounces. Yeah. I heard Spielberg say if he could recut the movie, he wouldn't have the leg go all the way and lay down onto the sea floor. Uh I thought that was a little too much. He'd change it to a walkie talkie. (laughs) That's That's funny. That that voiceover. Somebody get a gun. Somebody have a gun. <laughs> I th- I'm always interested in how much uh, attention Spielberg gives to Lorraine Gary. I, mean, I think he. He really likes her. He likes her as a character. He probably liked her as an actor. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, like that's a kind of role that a, that other directors might have just really ignored, you know? Mm-hmm. And I always, I just think the way that he treats her in this film is really special. Yeah, I, I love her. I think she's a fantastic character. I can see why they they had that. Well, I don't know if it's a Scheinberg thing or not, the, why she ended up coming back and being the lead. In a movie later, right. but I, I think she's fantastic in this. But that that shot of Brody looking out to the ocean and then his POV zooming into the open yeah, ocean, yeah. just again, you know, thematically, I mean, we know its function, but it connects back to that first time that he looked over his shoulder when he uh, discovered, you know, the remains of Christy on the beach. And so these kind of visual bookends or touchstones... Um, structurally are just really really great i think it's also a great use of the zoom lens and you know that's a a technique that got overused through the 70s misunderstood in the 60s and 70s but a a properly placed zoom can get you a lot of emotional impact yeah and it's so they're so well done that i kind of forgot that jaws has zooms you know like i kind of forget until i see them like this and I'm having to process the movie. I kind of forgot that there were zooms in it. Here's another really nice Warner. Oh, yeah. So we don't need the subtitles or the dialogue to know what's going on in this scene. Right. It's really great. What's interesting about this movie and what I think is kind of why it's hard to pin this movie down in terms of a three-act structure is that our 
human antagonist is now dispatched with. You know, in a way, right at the moment that he signs the paper, we're kind of into a brand new movie. You know, the dynamic completely changes. And so the obstacle the for Broderi has switched from the mayor to definitely just the shark. <laughs> you could argue that the genre of the movie changes at this moment. It's yeah. significant midpoint. Another way to say it is once we've gotten rid of this guy, we need a new asshole and we're going <laughs> to mm-hmm. get one. Because <laughs> he's a real asshole in the scene. <laughs> Here he is. Right. He's your new asshole. <laughs> he just dominates this scene. It is just glorious and and the emotions that we get from hooper here yeah talk about letting the balloon go up i mean wow this could be fun yeah well we're gonna find out it's not gonna be much fun for hooper yeah well and then suddenly just the the it had been there this kind of class difference type of thing had been very you know kind of on simmer for the first half of the movie and then suddenly this dynamic between quint and hooper becomes a really interesting thing about the movie. And they didn't apparently like each other very much, Dreyfus Not at all. Shaw. I could see that. Yeah. They did not like each other at all. Well, and I could see Shaw just deciding, I'm just not going to like him, you know, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Just going to just bust his balls. For- he was, Shaw was, not to get too into the background, Shaw was a little bit too worried about the IRS at this point. He spent a lot of time on this movie trying to figure out how he could get out of the, you know, get through the work day and then go to Canada or something to reduce his um, U.S. work hours. So he was constantly shuffling off when he wasn't shooting because he was about to hit this, like, quota of work hours in the U.S. where he was going to have to pay this big tax bill. Hmm. So he was really – and he was drunk a lot too, uh, apparently. But between those two things, like, Shaw wasn't probably that present for the rest of the cast, if you get what I mean. Like, he was just – Coming in for his shooting days and getting out of there. We should probably just quickly mention Joe Joe Alves, the production designer, because I believe this was a set that was built uh, there on location, but they built this. And boy, the the set design and how this is furnished is really fantastic. I've always loved how he has them tie the knot. Yeah. He ties the knot. He throws them the knot. He doesn't look at the knot at all. He just throws it up. He knew full well he'd be able to tie the knot, I think, for one thing. But was, just all this posture. Was Hayden on the list for actors for this part? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I think they were pretty close to casting him. I don't remember what happened, but um, yeah. And then had Shaw done the, the sting already? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a bu- there were a bunch of different cast combinations, weren't there? I didn't like make a list of them, but other people were supposed to play all of these characters, I believe, at some different points before they landed on this casting. I definitely don't think Dreyfus was their first choice. Um, he was barely known at the time. Mm-hmm. I think Dodie Kravitz was the only thing he was really known for, and that was not a big blockbuster or anything, so. Uh, oh, an American Graffiti. Maybe I'm thinking more of American Graffiti was where he was. Yeah, I guess. Never mind. He was known for American Graffiti, but. Hmm. The- so do you, let me ask you this. I mean, 
We've been on on Hooper's side for most of the movie, right? Where here's the educated guy; he knows what he's talking about. We know he knows what he's talking about. He's bucking heads with bureaucracy, but don't you kind of start to think he's kind of a jerk too? Here, I know Quint is an asshole, as Mitch said, but I also kind of think that that Hooper's an asshole. I mean, he's he is wrong later. I will get to that scene later, but. He is wrong and stubborn and then makes faces at him like a child. And I don't think that – are we supposed to keep rooting for Hooper in this relationship? Or is it really just two conflicting characters butting heads and you don't really take sides? Yeah, I, I think know. we're supposed to root for Brody. we got these two guys yeah. on either side of him and he can't keep him under control, either one of them. Yeah. But I think maybe it's the, uh, the uh, blue-collar guy in me that kind of roots for Quinn <laughs> a little bit. I, I – he does. He does know more yeah. what he's doing out here, you know. And obviously, we see the moment where uh, Hooper realizes that too. Yeah, well, and he's completely charismatic too. That's you've also yeah. right. got that. So this is our send off to um, Lorraine Gary's character. And you're right. I do think Spielberg really did um, invest a lot of effort uh, you know and i mean you can tell he's definitely interested in her character yeah i think that he he knows it's the last time we're going to see her in the movie we don't know that but i think he gives her a, a proper goodbye which is nice whatever happened to women wearing bandanas on their heads <laughs> like that my mom did it any day, every day, pretty much. In the late 70s, early 80s, my mom wore a bandana on her hair like that. It just went away. Maybe overplays this. Yeah. Maybe overplays it. Having her run away from the place is a little... Yeah. I, I, I never really believed that. I don't because either, she's, because she's too strong for that, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's an iconic shot. That's pretty incredible. Just in cinema history, that shot will be remembered. And we're 72 minutes into the film, and it's essentially, for me, for me I always feel like this is the middle of the movie. This mm. is the midpoint when they go out to sleep, mm-hmm. even though it's technically not. I always think the midpoint is when he signs that voucher, but... Yeah, that could be too, right? Yeah, the beginning of that the, the sequence the versus dis- the end. The dissolve the end. of blood in the water over the mm-hmm. boat, you know, is a, a nice touch. <laughs> so when you've seen the movie as many times as we have, uh, you, you do sort of notice the sky changing through the film. Yeah. But there's always plenty to look at, and you have to make an effort you know because i mean this is a great frame there's a lot going on in this frame mm-hmm. i don't know how they did it filming on the water yeah that's pretty incredible and i mean getting the sky and the light you know it's just not going to match it's going to be a pain in the ass every day well also i just think on the technical level of operating a camera on a boat <laughs> for as long mm-hmm. as that and and making you not barf 
And I think there were talks early about, um, you know, locking the camera down on sticks most of the time. And it actually looks like maybe it is here. And then they realized very quickly that that would be a barfarama. worse. And they yeah. handheld pretty much the second half of this movie is very, a lot of handheld. And Michael Chapman was the camera operator on this movie, who was also a director of photography. Um, what's interesting is before this movie, Michael Chapman was the DP of The Last Detail, the Hal Ashby movie. But then he went to being a camera operator on this. And then after this, he shot many films, including Taxi Driver. Um, a weird IMDb note is that on the movie The Last Detail, Michael Chapman is also in it in a small part listed as Taxi Driver. So <laughs> a weird Twilight Zone thing of being a taxi driver in one movie and then shooting that film later. Bill Butler was uh, so well known for being able to shoot on the water after this <laughs> mm. that for when they had to do the boat sequence in Cuckoo's Nest and they needed another DP, they hired Butler to come do that sequence. Yeah, and I uh, looked him up. He was born April 7th, 1921, and he's still alive, which means he's 100. Wow. It's incredible. Yeah, Bill Butler, 100 years old. I believe Michael Chapman, we just lost him last year, I think. Mm. It was very recent that Chapman passed. So this is a great little suspense moment. Uh, the camera setup has changed to where now we see Hooper in the background. It's it's interesting how prior to this, everybody's been, you know, they're kind of farting around and arguing and grumbling. And then with this incredible precision, this set piece begins. And the whole tone of being out on that boat is different now than it was mm -hmm. prior to him thinking he's got a bite. Mm -hmm. And I know obviously, well, obviously that's the story, but the tonal shift is really interesting. The precision now that we were, that we're seeing shot, mm -hmm. shot, shot, build, build, build. <laughs> yeah. All I can figure is, you know, all that time they had out there where the weather wasn't cooperating, et cetera, allowed them time to stage and block these scenes because there's, even though it's a handheld movie, there's such a precision to the framing. Uh, mm -hmm. But, man. I would assume these wider lenses make focusing a little bit easier too, right? With Panavision lenses. Yeah, they they would. And, you know, honestly, um, anamorphic lenses, you have to stop down more anyway. They just don't look good. They're, they're way too soft when you open up. So um, to answer your question, yes. You know, wider lenses and anamorphic stop down. It gives you a little bit of a break on focus pulling. <laughs> That's pretty inside baseball stuff, but yeah, uh, you know, the, somebody has to pull focus every time somebody moves towards or away from the lens, and uh, if you have the aperture open a certain amount, it 
they have to do so a lot of work. They're pulling focus on that. You think they're pulling focus on Shaw's face, or, or is it wide enough that we that it just is? No, that somebody's no somebody's having yeah. to do some work. Somebody's on it. And honestly, I don't know at that. You know, like in these kind of handheld, I don't know if Chapman himself is pulling his own focus or if there's another guy there or not. But somebody's having to do that work. That's the other thing that you know we forget. There's a there's a DP, there's an operator, there's a focus puller, there's at least one sound person, probably two, mm-hmm. probably a boom operator and somebody with a Nagra. That's like you know, and then a PA. There's six people. <laughs> well, and on this, there's a whole nother boat with lights on right. it. There's another boat with lights on it, and that's what's just nuts <laughs> to think of the lighting boat. And that's where that light was coming from. Is that correct? The light that was on their faces. I think so. I mean, you know, occasionally yeah. I'm sh- they could probably get away with the you know natural light yeah. and some bounce or yeah. something, but you well, can tell again, very look often. At how, look at how the sky changes. Some days it's blue, and other days it's overcast. Yeah. Ow. I think that's a great shot too. Mm-hmm. Putting it in the foreground there. Look at the look at the horizon in the background and how that is just going. Yeah. Wow, oh, shit. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> it's almost diagonal at yeah. one point. <laughs> yeah, you can see the movie lights reflecting in their glasses, so they're you know they're lighting that interior for sure. <laughs> you said this is inside baseball, Todd, but mm-hmm. this is this is why our Patreon subscribers. Pay the big bucks. <laughs> they want to know about focus pullers. That's right. <laughs> well, if you know, if they're that into it, it's funny. You know, there's a, a preference today for really shallow depth of field. You know, as sensors on cameras get larger, the less depth of field you actually have, and it's it's an aesthetic thing. And there seems to be this idea of like trying to get shallower and shallower depth of field. And when you read old trade magazines from the 70s and 80s, those guys are trying to get deeper depth of field. You know, they're actually wanting to be able to shoot at a deeper stop to give their focus pullers a break. So it's just funny how times change. I love wide lenses. I just generally love wide lenses. Like this shot is so great. You can, you know, you can see everything. Yeah, and these aren't like Terry Gilliam wide. You know, they're not uh, right, distorted right. or uh, bizarre. But yeah, you're just it allows you to see the world. <laughs> Stop playing with yourself, Hooper. So here we go. So this was, of course, this this is the next moment that sends them yeah out of their seats. I I really don't know if I can think of a moment in another movie where the energy level just goes through the roof the way it does here. <laughs> well, like where really that happens that. and then you're just like, oh shit. That shot and then the music frame really helps. Yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah. Well, once everybody goes into action and the score, this is some of the best work Williams has ever done. If you ask me, just the way it turns into this wonderful energetic adventure 
all of a sudden. We've had so much tension, suspense, other feelings throughout the film. And at this point, when it really starts to move, <laughs> it's so exciting. What really makes this horrific is the look on Quint's face. And he's sure. been the man who's in control and, and swaggers about being able to catch the big fish. And when you see that look on his face, you're like, oh, no, we're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> see, not only the look on his face, but the cross cut over his shoulder where he's just standing there. Yeah. It's like all of that put together. It's like you would think he'd be going into action or start barking orders saying, we got a nice long time where he's doing nothing but gawking. Yeah. And this shot. And right here, it's just so exciting. You really see how big the thing is. 20 footer. Of course, he's got to say something different. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Brody's like. But right here, this music right here just gives me chills. Brody would be, I think it's actually 26. It's kind of funny, the bigger boat line, you know, the most famous line from the whole movie. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it's a funny character trait because he keeps, he really doesn't know, Brody doesn't really know what else to do. So all he can do is suggest the bigger boat. He keeps doing yeah. it. Hey, we do need to get a bigger boat, right? <laughs> Even the scene ends with him still talking about how they could get a bigger boat. Because <laughs> he doesn't have anything else, you know, to offer to the situation, yeah. really. And he will not go out there. And that's the whole reason he wants him out (laughs) there is to get a sense of scale for the photo. That's what just cracks me up. (laughs) But, you know, it it is. But at the same time, that is kind of important. Oh, it is. For the study. And it's also not really dangerous to be out there. (laughs) So just do it, man. (laughs) Looks like we finally got a little bit of nice weather. Yeah. Blue skies and clouds. But it's fun. It's funny is that we get into this. We have this terrifying moment where the shark comes up. Then we get this all this awe, and then we get this adventure, and then we have like two quick comedy beats in the middle of all this. Between, it's an interesting time to choose for uh, to to put place laugh or two laughs, but we're still caught up in the energy of it all. That's a cool. It's definitely an adventure movie now. With some yeah. with suspense and scares, but it's kind of stopped being a horror movie for a little bit. But it uh, it does sort of um, foreshadow Raiders of the Lost Ark in the sense of being able to sort of intercut action and adventure with the comedy beats. You know that just that sort of and I'm you know other movies have done that before, but it's definitely in mm-hmm. the wheelhouse that uh, Spielberg would use in Raiders. I love that line. I mean, this is so tense mm-hmm. right here. A little ticking clock and him saying, don't wait for me is really great. That's pretty convincing. So are you was the barrel idea invented because of the problems with the shark or was that already a story point that they just accentuated I believe that it was invented as another way to huh. not have to use the shark and I think it came after the dock 
business. Wow. Like yeah. we can create things that stand in for the shark. That's pretty genius if that's true. Yeah, yeah. That's saved the movie. <laughs> and I've always found it in a few places a little confusing with the barrels and how many yeah, and yeah. all that business. But we know it means there's a shark around. Well, we know it's a hell of a shark if it can take that barrel down and it doesn't come back up again. Yeah. All we really need to know. I always liked that shot. Mm-hmm. That was really beautiful. <laughs> and look, we've got some, boy, we're, we're put, putting some light on their faces now. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, uh, I call it the Dean Semler <laughs> look, you know, the, like the shot in. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Road Warrior and other Road movies Warrior. where he always has like a magic hour background, but the sun is miraculously coming from the wrong side. Looks great, though. <laughs> You know, he shot Razorback, and there's a lot of great shots in Razorback, as stupid as that movie is. <laughs> and, they're, and they're in the same locations as Mad Max. Right. That was um, Russell Mulcahy, right? The, yeah. yeah. So obviously that must so be I'm real, gonna... right? <laughs> that he really had that missing tooth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to have a question here in a minute. I don't think I've ever heard anybody bring this up or talk about it. But I'll see what you guys think or see if you've ever thought about it. Maybe it's one of those things that's really obvious that I just have missed out on the conversation. But I'll wait till it gets there. I have a weird question. Do you think they really shot this out on the ocean? Or is this, you know, there was no need, but but I wonder if they did. Hmm. It's probably a set, right? I don't know. I don't know about that. Or maybe it's docked or something. And that's the, what I—that's yeah. my guess—is that it's docked or it's in close enough that they can keep it a little stable. And you just put some kind of a mechanism on the connector to that light and have it rock yeah. like a like a. I mean, because there's no detail in the background, and my guess is that it's right. a cloudy day, and they, again, they've gelled the windows or something, and that's just sort of generic cloudy light outside that's been darkened by gelled windows. I don't know. Because it's not night, Mm-mm. is it? No. Even though we think of it as being at night. I always do. I always think this is after dinner. You guys ever done a version of this, you know, with people? <laughs> I actually sat around and compared scars. <laughs> I, I have no scars. You don't, you don't like have any his, scars? I like, his, I like his appendix. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's what I was going to ask. I... Yeah, it's the appendix. Show his appendix scar off or not? <laughs> right. Yeah. There's that part of me that wants to get to. Was Brody shot at some point when he was a cop no, you know, in New York? No, it's joke. Yeah. <laughs> actually, Brody here's the same character from Sorcerer, and you know he's really actually a. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he was a cop in New York, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, not not a safe place in the 1970s to be True. a cop. Him and he and, he and Popeye Doyle. Yeah, that's right. Occasionally they go pick their feet in Poughkeepsie. Yep. (laughs) I think this is another one of those great moments where you just pull the balloon down, to use that Richard Maybaum phrase. Everybody's laughing and happy, Mm -hmm. and then somebody says the wrong thing, and then it just all kind of goes to shit, which is really wonderful. There is a a, a horizon back there of water, so they actually are on the water. Yep, you're right. 
Now you got me looking back there. <laughs> it's kind of funny looking. It does. <laughs> I can't tell. Yeah, you can see it. It, it pops up. I can little, see it, yeah, but it, it also up. looks weird. Like it could be. I don't know. So, you know, there's a moment in this famous speech where they cut to a different angle slightly and his facial expression is different. And it's always been, I know that you got to do what you got to do as an editor. And, uh, but it is funny how there's a moment where his expression changes on, who, who, on, on Robert Shaw at some point, cause he's been kind of smiling. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when it is, but, uh, yeah. I wonder if John Carpenter was influenced for the fog from this, you know, the sort of idea of telling ghost stories. There's so many moments in the fog where, you yeah. know, the, there's these kind of stories going on. It, it's, it is great that in the middle of this movie, you can just stop and listen. Now, if Brian Keith had been playing the role of Hooper, he would be trying to upstage everything that Robert Shaw is doing. So it is something to be said for a generous actor like Richard Dreyfus to be just sitting still and listening and doing mm -hmm. what he's supposed to do, mm -hmm. you know, because there are certain actors who are notorious for like you couldn't put them in a two shot because they hmm. try to steal the focus away. That's funny. I never noticed, but that's exactly why, because he's just got his eyes right on him and is being still. Which is what his character would really be feeling that that just mesmerized an awe of the story. I don't know whether um, you guys have ever heard war stories, but there's know, the cut. See that the setup's different, oh, yeah, yeah. and his face yeah. is different, and you could yeah. tell it's a different take. But who cares? Uh, I, but I had an uncle who who would tell war stories, and they were riveting. And mm. these guys that were in World War Two and saw this kind of horror when you ever could get them to talk about it it was special and you and i know that spielberg's fascination with world war ii right uh, he, he's heard his share of war stories yeah just how he delivers these lines with that sort of smile like he's trying to diffuse the horror of it a little bit That aside, younger than Mr. Hooper, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, it personalizes everything. Mm -hmm. It's a great speech to study in terms of how you have a character tell a story and keeping it personal, mm -hmm. keeping it emotional, keeping it immediate. We're doing a slight push in, but it also feels, I think that it's a little bit of a zoom too. It's like a combination of a slow dolly and a s slight zoom. So would that have been on like a doorway dolly or something? Probably, yeah, a little something. I always liked, this is dumb, but I always liked how Brody with that black turtleneck and there's no backlight on him on those shots, so he just kind of gets swallowed up, looks very small. <laughs> you just see his head yeah. and no body. Well, the horizon's bouncing back there now, isn't it? Mm-hmm.
Now that practical light hanging from the ceiling is doing a lot of work, but there's also a movie light on them as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's actually a light on a single light on Brody and another light on the two guys and the practical. There's three lights in that scene. Never has a barrel been so sinister. <laughs> what were they eating? What's that food on the plate? Brody didn't eat. That's funny. I never thought about that. You know, he probably would get seasick, so his plate's full. <laughs> Bringing that mood back up with a song. Mm-hmm. And then yanking the balloon down again it's just amazing how we go through this roller coaster of emotions through that 10 minutes or so yeah Ooh. yeah not much to say it's just great filmmaking it's just yeah. all, it's all all doing the job. It's great. I think another that was a diopter shot. There There's you go. A diopter right there. There yeah. we go. All right. So this is day for night again. Isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah, yeah. He's got his got his M1. He's got his World War II gun. Yeah, this is how you have to do day for night back then. It's fine, you know. It, we're so into the story that it doesn't take us out too badly. As long as there aren't clouds, it's pretty good. Yeah. That's always the giveaway. Yeah, like I always say, I just excuse it. It's a different time. It's that time of day to me. I just never <laughs> bothers me unless it's light. really there's egregious. A, there's, did you see oh, the meteor yeah. back there? Yeah, and there was the meteorite. There's yeah, another couple, right? can't help himself. Now we got clouds. That look with the boat being so silhouetted against the water, the last scene of Sugarland Express is an actor standing in front of a lake, and it's that same kind of thing. And I remember Vilmos Zygmunt was the cinematographer of that movie and told Spielberg, he's like, we have to wait till 4 o'clock to get that shot. It won't look like that in real life, but if we wait till 4 p.m. through the lens, the water will look like how you want it. So I think... Spielberg learned that's that's probably their 4 p.m. shot. You guys remember that movie Orca? Seeing the name of the boat being Orca. Sure. <laughs> Was that a Dino De Laurentiis? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember um, uh, Namu the Killer Whale? No. I think like Chuck Connors or somebody like that's in it. Mm.
yeah, we're in such a different movie now than we were in the first half on land. It, it's just very different. You just watch the sky and it just is, it's just amazing. You know, it's white and then it's blue and then it's. Oh. I forgot about that one. That little scare. I like this, that story in The Cutting Edge where Spielberg talks about how he and Verna Fields were. He would always want to use more shark and she would always want to use less. And he was like, but it would only look good at 22 frames. If we get 23 or 24, it would look terrible. And so they're always, they were always having to cut back mm -hmm. because at a certain point you just saw it was phony. And now it's Moby Dick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now he's the voice of reason yeah <laughs> it's nice how it shifts those that, that triangle around well and it's weird because that's such a big story moment of destroying the radio but there's no time to think about it you know like the, suddenly yeah. It just moves on. And here we've got to be careful how much shark we show. <laughs> yeah, they got pretty close. Yeah, the last one with the first one. There's first one, one little eyeball shot you get. I know it's the doll's eyes, but it looked pretty fake. I want to stay away from the eyes for the most part. <laughs> I just realized that shadow yeah, it's not the, it, had a camera yeah. on the shoulder. You could see a, a, sure film, a film yeah. mag. <laughs> Yeah, you know, navigating these three characters is interesting. And if anybody's ever worked with three, whether you're writing together or whatever you're doing, three is always tricky because you generally wind up with two against one, you know, unless mm -hmm. everybody is in agreement. And so it's 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 fun how he shifts that dynamic around through the course of the movie. So who do you think is the primary author of the screenplay is it carl gottlieb i mean who you know the, 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 because well, it's very different howard, than the book yeah they say that howard sackler did a did a big pass on it and then he thought the movie was going to be trashy and he took his name off of it hmm. and gottlieb comes yeah. in as a production writer so he he comes on after howard sackler leaves mm-hmm but that's so when a lot know. of work was done, right? I mean, if, right. If that book there was is... a lot of there was a lot of work that was that was definitely done. Yeah, I mean, I think it was Gottlieb. You know, from what I understand, he most of what we see on the screen is Gottlieb's work. I mean, obviously, outside of Benchley and coming up with the story in the first place. But um, yeah, Gottlieb said he had to do a whole lot of rewrite work when he got handed whatever they had before he came on. And Spielberg wanted him to tear it apart. Well, and, and from what I understand, that you know, they Spielberg and Gottlieb basically shared a place there on Martha's Vineyard, and at the you know at the end of the day after shooting, they would, you know, work on new pages for the next day, et cetera, and just kind of worked worked mm -hmm. the script.
There's a really funny short film that Carl Gottlieb directed called The Absent-Minded Waiter with Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's I think that's what it's called <laughs> with Buck Henry. Uh, I, didn't it? It was nominated for it an was Oscar. Nominated for an I Oscar, think. I think. Yeah. So yeah. funny. Somebody's underwater jerking on those barrels. <laughs> <laughs> the nice thing about having three people on this scene is that it's great for widescreen because, see, there's always somebody that gets mm-hmm. to be the compositional element on the other side. So Quint gets it for this shot. You know, he's up there on the right. The choice to have your main character in a black shirt, though, now that I'm realizing it, he always pops out against that blue sky or any sky, and your eyes yeah. is drawn directly to him. On yeah, and the other shots. two are kind of dressed alike, mm-hmm. even though one's in a sweatshirt. The one's same color as the sky. Yeah. 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 I mean, they blend into the sky. It's an interesting choice. You'd think you wouldn't want anybody to blend into the sky, but. So this is a little um, gimmicky to me. It's, we're just trying to get more, generate more tension. You know, I'm not sure mm-hmm. how yeah. horrible, painful it really would be to have that rope back there, but that's okay. <laughs> Keep it moving. Keep it moving. Hooper's just a wuss. <laughs> <laughs> I like how this spins the boat around. I think that's a really nice moment. Oh. Now I'm going to start setting up the tanks. Yeah. <laughs> so when was Hooper supposed to die originally, wasn't it? I think he dies in the book, and um, I don't know if they well, filmed... I'm not sure if, if on this movie, if... Oh, certainly. I, I know there was... I think it was the intention to have him die earlier huh. uh, in the script, but I think Dreyfus kind of earned his way through the movie. If I understand correctly, they kept wanting to write more scenes for him. Yeah, I think it's the case where the the more commercial choice of letting a character live really is earned in this movie. That would have been a real drag if he had died. Yeah, I think so too. Mm -hmm. You got three characters, you either kill them all or just kill one. Mm-hmm. True. Killing two of them makes no sense. Yeah, even an alien, you know, at least there's there's a, a cat. <laughs> you, you have Ripley and a cat. Yes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think this shot when he throws the machete down, the key, the shot lingers a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
Here it is. So uh, look at the, I mean, that shot is, um, mm. it's just there for the sheer pleasure of somebody like that shot. Mm-hmm. Spielberg liked mm-hmm. that shot. And that reminds us that for all the popcorn type of movie making going on, Spielberg and those guys all did still believe that film was an art and that it is okay to take an extra second to look at a pretty shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that that's a moment there where Hooper's having to reduce his own authority you know there that's a bonding moment between mm-hmm. them yeah it's interesting how we're going to build in a couple of little bonding moments because we're going to start losing characters mm-hmm. look at the light reflection mm-hmm. <laughs> you just realize these uh Shots, you know, like the hands on the accelerator tilting up to the face of the person is, again, my I'm a big fan of John McTiernan's early films, and the, the, that kind of look in Die Hard and Hunt for Red October definitely had a precedent in this movie. The kind of yeah, where you connect shots with a, a whip pan mm-hmm. or a tilt instead of reducing them to being single cuts. Yeah. And I think you get a lot of immediacy when you do that. I think it's a great technique to keep keep you keep the audience in that space Mm -hmm. the unique thing that mctiernan and jan de bont would do in those movies would they would do kind of a three thing where it would start on an object tilt up to a face and then it might swing over to somebody else or another thing within the same shot Mm -hmm. That head bob that Quint does. <laughs> <laughs> he's losing it. Yeah. This guy could do anything and probably not good. Somehow we're not really thinking he's going to save the day. Right. That's why, you know, if we are tra- talking about three-act structure, if we have to peg the movie into that, I feel like we're still... we're. At, we're still in the second act, I feel, because I almost feel like the third act doesn't begin until they totally disregard Quint's plan and and go with Hooper's plan with the shark cage. That feels like this is the new final movement where we're mm-hmm. doing what we have to do to get this shark killed. Yeah, because Quint's not the man anymore. Yeah. But we're in such a claustrophobic location for this whole second half of the movie that any sort of diagnosing of where act breaks are becomes really hard to do because we're we're all on this boat. You know, it's just it all works and mm-hmm. it all escalates. But concepts of sequences and act breaks just seem to kind of dissolve for me on this. It's hard to tell because we're just stuck on this boat. Definitely act breaks. Sequences are how this thing is put together, I think. Yeah. I, oh, I would totally agree. But I feel like I don't. I'm not as aware of them, you know, because it's yeah, it's so yeah, fluid to me. Um, 
But certainly, yes, under uh, the engine of this, it's very strongly structured. Uh-oh. We set that up with him saying, you know, I'll never put on a life jacket again. And then now that he's considering it, we know it's got to be dire straits. Yeah, and it's the storyteller that pans that camera over, you know. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's a, hey, look at this. Of course, he hands it to them now that I say, <laughs> he, he doesn't have one for himself. Right, he doesn't have one. Sea dogs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I say we got a new plan, right? Mm -hmm. Mm This is a great musical cue. And that was a great cut, too, that that ellipsis in time, you know, where suddenly the shark cage is just there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when... This is, like, good montage. Yeah. Good, Holly, good <laughs> Hollywood montage, where it really is escalating things. It, it is not treading water. Is it just me, or from a costume standpoint... Doesn't it really indicate to you a change in, in Quint when he goes from hat to uh, headband? <laughs> I know that's a weird thing to ask, but to me it always seems like when you put a headband on, you're kind of in your last, uh, <laughs> you're kind of, it's the last charge, the final that's charge. That's true. When or, did that happen? He's, when he's did got he... his military jacket on, too. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, I yeah. never noticed that, but you're right. That was somebody, you know, that was... Uh, and... and and Brody's short sleeve now. Yep. So everything, everybody's in different costumes. Everything now. changes. Yeah. Obviously, Hooper for practical purposes, but um. oh, well, then look at this. This is so funny. So, so he he blows. The joke has already been blown because he's going to say he doesn't have any spit to put on his go mm -hmm. goggles. His goggles are already wet. <laughs> Spits the, the spit thing only works if they're if they're dry. <laughs> Oh, well. Doesn't matter. Nah, it's going to fog up, buddy. That's a great moment between those two guys, though. It's really interesting. This is old, old scuba stuff. Mm -hmm. Scuba technology's changed so much since then because you would have a a buoyancy vest and man it's all just weights. Yeah. So all the actual shark footage and and you know non actor shots of Dreyfus were shot in Australia, I believe. Right. And actually I think a lot of these close I think like that's not even Richard Dreyfus, I don't think. I think some of these are that's right there are shots where there's some close shots where it's not somebody else is doubling him yeah and i think in the wider shots 
in order to make the sharks look bigger than they are, it's actually um, it's a little person, a little I think, person. in the yeah, cage. It's a little person, yeah. yeah, and then the who almost got killed. Yep. Wow. But yeah, if you start looking closely, it's you really can't tell whether it's Dreyfus or not. There's no one going back once you take that cork off. <laughs> Oof. Uh, okay, so quick anecdote, a story uh, in on Halloween of 1987. Um, I was with my friends, and we had just gone to go see Prince of Darkness, the John Carpenter movie. Mm-hmm. And then we came back and we were hanging out at some place. You know, it was one of those nights where you're young and you go to some place that you don't know who's there. Some party. I don't know who it was. And there were these teenage girls there and they were watching Jaws on VHS. And they were convinced that the movie was not going to be scary. You know, they were rolling their eyes going, oh, this is going to be so boring. And by the time this scene was happening... (laughs) They were screaming so loud and hiding behind the couch... uh, that I, all I could do was kind of laugh. I'm like, I told you it's a scary movie. <laughs> mm. I'd forgotten some of this stuff. Shark looks pretty good. Yeah. Oh, it looks great. So I guess all this stuff would have still been shot on location. There's real. That's yeah, there's the real, the real. The real shark. I'm just going to hide over here. <laughs> and I hope he kills the shark before my tanks run out of air. Yeah. It's given way. <laughs> this whole part of the movie is definitely uh, where an editor gets to shine. You know, I mean, can you imagine having to integrate, you know, the second unit shark footage and, and, inserts that were done later and then footage that with different angles of sun and all this and trying to put it together into a coherent thing and then making a masterpiece yeah the timing of this too in the lab must have been challenging Mm. so many different elements so many different colors here we go (laughs) here he comes (laughs) it's it's kind of crazy how quickly that happens in a way yeah like it's suddenly we escalate to that but it's good because it's shocking. And it's ridiculous, but it's amazing. You get about yeah. a chop you know, and a half out of that sharp shark, and then you got to cut away. <laughs> yep. One, oh. jump, chop. Oh, there it looks a little, it's a little dodgy right there. And that's where it gets, but it's such, an, but it's such a moment. Guy, so. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And he plays it so well. And no, mu- it. no music. It's just all the more horrific.
<laughs> really makes me wonder if they added the doll's li- doll's eyes line in just so it's like see later like see they're just <laughs> lifeless they're like a doll's eyes that's not fake that's how they really are so i guess they chose this location because the it's never it's not very deep so the shark could be on his contraption on the mm. track under the water and and it wouldn't be as rough an ocean as if they were out on where it was really deep. See, if they made this movie now, would they have that beat where he has a flashback to the picture he saw in the in the <laughs> book? And then he goes, oh, I'll throw this in here. It would have you know, to be intentional well, Yeah, and now. then they would like also would have would to hear be... an echoey voice of Dreyfus going, you screw around with these and they're going to blow up, blow up, blow up, blow up. <laughs> blow up. <laughs> well, what is it? Quint says something about it. Too. I can't remember. Quint says something about it eating. Oh, it's something about it eating him. Or I can't remember. Anyway. I, I, for the first time, noticed that on the horizon behind him, you can see land. So they're just close enough, mm. which is where the story was. They were trying to get him in close to land where they could drown him. You, you can't see it from that direction, but yeah, off the frame right. There, see the land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's pretty scary. Yeah. Hmm. We know those. We know that shark means business. <laughs> <laughs> it also looks like paint is chipping off of him right there. Yeah, I always mm. wondered about that. Yeah, today they would have gone in and cleaned that up digitally. It's the speckled great white. It's a yeah. certain species. <laughs> well, the camera's always just right where it needs to be, though. That's just... Look at that. Mm. Lens is getting longer. Yeah. <laughs> you probably heard, heard the story that Spielberg wasn't even there for blowing the shark up. He left the day early. <laughs> wow. He maintains he didn't want to get thrown in the water because he knew that was coming. They were going to throw him in the drink. <laughs> so he left early and said, you guys blow it up. Yeah, but he was having a nervous breakdown too. Yeah, like I think it was. I think him and Gottlieb were on the plane. It wasn't it him and Gottlieb on the plane flying away, and he was like having tremors and. I think so. I can only couldn't sleep for like a month. God. Yeah. <laughs> I also heard they used the sound effect from the movie Duel for the death scream <laughs> of the shark right there. It's the same right, same sound effect. They, and didn't they use the sound effect for Duel? It's an animal or something, isn't it? I it's think like so. Yeah. A T Rex from King Kong or something slowed down. Hey, what did I miss? <laughs> I always think that when he comes out, he just comes out right at that moment. Hey, say what? What happened? Here? Hey, Quint, look what I found. Or you know, so <laughs> <laughs> hey, the shark's down there. I saw him. You don't think maybe he heard that kaboom when he was underwater? I would imagine he. I don't know. I don't know how you would process that happening if you, you were underwater yeah, at the for time. Sure.
they could do a freeze frame right here and have a police squad ending. (laughs) 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 To have the police squad ending, you have to have another character walk through. Well, Well, it would be a dead Quint floating by. (laughs) 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 That would be half of a dead Quint. I've always admired the restraint of this movie. You know, not, this is it. This is all we need. Yeah. I really think a lot of people would be tempted to have him show up at home. Right. We get Lorraine Gary again. The music you is know. so great here, too. What what Williams oh, yeah. is doing to close this thing out is just superb. It's a summer movie, right? We're going to leave the theater yeah. happy? Yep. And it's one of those 70s movies where they don't include the full credits. You know, it's the abbreviated credits at the end. I looked on IMDb and there's like 5,000 people that in, that have parentheticals that say uncredited on IMDb. Yeah. Yeah, there's it would Michael all Chapman. change by the time we got to the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, on VHS, the resolution was so low that I could not tell that you actually see them arrive. Uh, but there mm-hmm. they are, you know, like in the background, they're, they're in the shot, making their way to land right there. There they are. Oh, yeah. Above the T. Mm-hmm. That's funny, the Technicolor. Yeah. At that point, it was just a lab. <laughs> It don't look like Technicolor. Right. Well, it remains a classic. Oh, yeah. Thank you for joining us. I hope everybody's enjoyed this. I I had a blast. This was really fun. For somebody who loves this movie and has seen it a gazillion times, I saw a bunch of new things, and that's always wonderful. Love it. All right, guys. See you all later. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time.